Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got far too many people in the room today and a lot of computers. It's really hot and I'm wearing a jacket. So we'll see how this goes. Erin uh, <laughs> is the star of the show. We'll come to you last. We'll do some introductions before that. Liz, Allie, you two are new to the podcast scene. Uh, tell us uh, briefly who you are. Let's start with you, Allie. Um, I am Allie, and I am a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista. And you're glad to be here, right? I am glad to be here. Good answer. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. Uh, Liz? I'm Liz. I'm also a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista, and I'm also glad to be here. Well, good. Wow. Good save. We learned quick here. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, Weston, this is a uh, repeat performance for you. You're back for I, another stint. I am back. You originally rotated with... Dr. Thomas over on the uh, adolescent unit. And how did I say yes? You were desperate for rotation, right? You didn't have anybody else that would say yes? Something I pretty much just said, hey, I'm actually inside your office right now. Can I rotate? <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have you back. And uh, going into psychiatry. Correct. Yeah, that's a, that's a fourth year decision on your way. And then Aaron, the start of the show, let's do a little bit deeper dive. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and, and where you're going in the future and how that may have led to this podcast being developed? Yeah, so I am Aaron Callahan. I'm a fourth year at Rocky Vista University. I've been in the last, what, two podcasts, maybe? I think so. Um, and yeah, so I am actually going into pediatrics. Um, I'm really excited. It's September, so we're working on applications right now. Um, but I really love psychiatry. It has kind of a special place in my heart. Um, my mom's a social worker. My bachelor's is in psychology. Um, I just love it. So I, I did my third year rotation up at the Wyoming State Hospital last year and had a really great experience at doing something that's completely unrelated to what most of my career will be or so I thought. Um, and so this year I decided I wanted to do another like state hospital type rotation. And I came across this one with Dr. Roundy. I'd heard good things, mostly from other people who had done the state hospital. Not Weston. Weston did. Weston told me this is a good rotation. It was before he knew me. Well, Fair he enough. knew your name. Yeah. Um, so on like the very first day of the rotation, so it's my fifth week, I'm doing six weeks total. Um, my very first day of the rotation, Dr. Roundy, was like, okay, let's talk about podcast topics. What are you interested in? And I said, I want to do pediatrics. And then I mentioned that I'm interested in like a primary care approach to psychiatry. And he mentioned, oh, that's awesome. We did a podcast about primary care psychiatry a few years ago, but with general like family medicine, primary care. I thought that was great. Listened to that podcast the next morning on my way to work, really enjoyed it and decided this could be a really cool topic to apply to pediatrics in particular and see what data is out there about um, pediatric primary care management of psychiatric topics. I had a few uh, ideas about how this podcast might turn out that were, um, well, totally wrong, <laughs> I think is a fair statement, right? Um, just as a brief recap, my recollection of the primary care podcast that we did, um, essentially we concluded that the primary care physicians in various areas of the country simply don't have access to psychiatric care. They take that psychiatric care on themselves, and the more they do that, the more comfortable they are. I think there was also an interesting study we found that suggested that outcomes for patients in the primary care setting is uh, very similar to the outcome mm -hmm. for 
psychiatrist. Do I remember that podcast reasonably well? Yeah, yeah. Since I just listened to it a few weeks ago, that's kind of what I took from it was that the data showed there wasn't a significant difference in outcomes for psychiatric care being provided by a psychiatrist versus primary care doc. Mm -hmm. Um, there wasn't a ton of research on it, but all the research that had been done kind of came to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, and so I thought maybe there would be research similar to that, but applied to pediatrics. And I was very surprised when I was going through thousands and thousands of articles, because you can scroll forever on the library website when you look up things like this. And I couldn't find anything really telling me about differences in outcomes based on who provided the care. In pediatric, in pediatric primary care. primary care management of psychiatric issues versus like child, adolescent psychiatrists. What I did find a ton of articles on was more about how pediatricians can help meet the need for more child psychiatry. So we'll talk a little bit about why that's become how it is. Um, but yeah, it's more about like how do primary care pediatricians provide that care versus is it the same level of quality? And, and I, I th I'm also under the impression that um, even with the literature we looked at, it, it's more about simply getting access to care than really looking at the quality of care overall. Right, right. I think the, the bigger issue becomes like, okay, if there's very minimal access to child psychiatrists in this country, which there is, um, it, is it better to get any care at all versus having no care that... Like, do you, would you rather have slightly suboptimal care than any care at all? Although I'm not going to go down the road of suboptimal, I'm, I think I'll say people who have more experience, right? right because right. I think more the physicians training, have. I, I think in some way, I think you and I talked about this before. It does seem like uh, primary care physicians who don't PPCPs. PCPs. PPCPs, right? The two piece, the PPCPs. So the pediatric primary care providers or physicians, mm -hmm. uh, the ones that we, we saw a couple of studies, they didn't have as much access and felt more comfortable delivering that care. Those that had more access felt less comfortable and it was right. ameliorated through some various programs we're going to talk about. So, right. so some interesting differences to watch for. We'll explain that as we go. How about if we start with some high yield information uh, at the beginning? Who has that? Put that on the, that's why there's so many people at the table because I invited both third years to do this part. <laughs> this goes back to me complaining about that. <laughs> yeah, so in children aged like three to 17, ADHD, anxiety, behavior problems, and depression were the most commonly diagnosed mental health disorders. Um, and especially like since the pandemic and stuff, anxiety and depression has increased in children. And an interesting thing that I found when kind of looking at these stats is that only about a third of parents with psychosocial concerns about their children plan to discuss them with their pediatrician. And then of those, only 40% of pediatricians actually responded to that. So starting with anxiety, this kind of ranges from separation anxiety, a lot of times seen in younger kids, to different phobias, social anxiety, general anxiety. And one thing to note is that this was harder to diagnose in younger children because of normal childhood fears and anxiety. And sometimes kids had more trouble difficult, had more trouble communicating their emotions. Um, and then just like for shelf exam type stuff, the DSM criteria only requires one out of six of the symptoms for six months in children. For for which condition? For generalized anxiety disorder. So that's different than for adults. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
but as far as like the different symptoms, they're the same as far as like restlessness, easily fatigued, irritable, muscle tension, sleep disturbances. Um, and then children with anxiety also had a greater chance um, of having depression as well. And in children, this more commonly presents as irritability than feelings of sadness, which is what we oftentimes see in adults. Um, but the children must also have five of the symptoms for greater than two weeks for major depressive disorder. Um, so depressed mood, diminished interest in activities, weight loss or gain, insomnia, but a lot of times it is harder to see in kids, especially in those teen years, because sometimes parents attribute it to just being a teenager. <laughs> So I want to double check what we've got so far. So you've mentioned two diagnoses. One, you mentioned a bunch of the beginning separation, anxiety, phobias, and so forth. The, the thing that you pointed out that is key for the shelf exam is that for generalized anxiety, children only need one of the uh, five diagnostic criteria to be met. And was there a time on that? Is it two weeks? For anxiety, it was the six months as well. So generalized anxiety disorder has to have the six months. Okay. Correct. With depression, you said it still has to be the two weeks with five of the symptoms. So we have to make sure we count those. And that's how we might distinguish that from maybe the challenges of being an adolescent. Yes, that's okay. correct. So, so those are the kinds of things you have to distinguish between on the shelf exam, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's what you were coming across on your, uh, as you reviewed the concepts tested on the shelf exam. Yes. Perfect. What else do you have for us, Liz? Um, depression as well in children is often undertreated just because children don't always understand their emotions or they may deny certain symptoms, just fear of being stigmatized for having depression, especially at a young age. Do questions about uh, undertreatment show up on the shelf exam and the practice questions you guys were looking at? I have not seen any yet. Okay. So, so I think it does focus mostly on the diagnostic criteria with attention to timelines and the number of criteria met then. Correct. Okay. I think particularly with like pediatric psych issues too, it's differentiating normal behavior from pathologic mm -hmm. things. So again, it's like the, is this normal teen versus depression? Does that normally come down then to the number of criteria met or does it do you have to, are, are you put in a difficult situation where you really have to go, well, that seems like a normal kid? Or? I would say on the psych shelf exam, it tends to be more about meeting diagnostic criteria. On the peds shelf exam, you're going to get similar questions, but it's going to be more about kind of general vibes, I guess. <laughs> Development, maybe. <laughs> For lack of a better word. Yeah. So you just got to go questions. with your gut. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Appropriate. So, so on the peds shelf exam, we're going to be looking at uh, age-appropriate behaviors for the for the period of time the child is in. Right, so instead of being asked like, oh, does this meet the diagnostic criteria and your options are like depression versus grief versus blah, 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 it'll be like, is this developmentally appropriate? Yes or, or no. Age. And then if it's not, then it's probably something like one of our psychiatric things that we would discuss more. Mm -hmm. Or you might actually be asked to name either the psycho psychological age or, or stage of development to, or the like a tanner stage is kind of right, the right. physical equivalent of what you'd be able to need to know. Yeah, okay. so it's, a, it's different approaches to the same topics based on if you're doing the psych aspect or the Pete's aspect. Okay, and then Allie, did you have some something to add here with this? Yeah. All um, right, throw it in. Let's hear it. <laughs> I will add with Pete's. I, had, I even had a question that was like wanted me to know timeline-wise of like when separation anxiety is normal for like toddler-aged kids versus mm -hmm. if it was like abnormal. So knowing the like timeline of when they should 
when that starts and when they outgrow things is yeah. definitely important in pediatrics. It's like a sure. social development question. Mm -hmm. Do we? I don't know that we see separation anxiety questions. I don't think it really comes up on the psych shelf, but it does come up on peds. Peds and family med for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I should probably know that. When is uh, what is the range that's expected with it? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm so glad it's not just me. <laughs> if you had asked me that about three months ago when I was taking step two, I would have been able to answer that and nail it. But right now, I'm nope. <laughs> All right, uh, keep going. Yeah. Um, so I was going to discuss ADHD um, since, like, I think I saw stats since like 2003. We've seen a pretty steep incline in um, like the num estimated number of adolescents that have been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, so like children, I saw stats that children two to five were about 2% diagnosed, six to, tw six to 11 is about 10%, and then 12 to 17 year olds is about 13% um, diagnosed. And it's more commonly diagnosed in boys, but uh, important to note that females are more likely to be, um, to present with the inattentive form versus the hyperactive and impulsivity form. All right, let me go back then. So you're talking about shelf exam preparation for ADHD. Yep. And one of the things to be watching for is that you might see females who are inattentive as opposed to hyperactive and to be aware of that distinction of how the presentation might be. Yeah. Okay. Are there other kind of tricky things to think about with ADHD that you came across while you were prepping for this? If not, we'll roll on. Um, I think sometimes it, it like I've had questions that it, they make it kind of challenging to differentiate if it's like a normal behavior like we were talking about or if it's exaggerated to the point that it is a diagnosis so kind of knowing the like more key features to look at so a couple of the things that I've read that are key to look for is reduced school or occupational performance so like grades are getting worse or um, like teachers have comments is really important if you have questions that they're like they haven't noticed any change in their school activity then that probably should lead you away from an ADHD diagnosis. I'm, I'm gonna interrupt for just a second I think what you're talking about I want to make sure this part's clear generally speaking ADHD doesn't just arrive right it doesn't come on like maybe depression right where you have episodes but you will see some children who are able to manage the content, mm -hmm. but then it becomes the, the uh, ADHD symptoms might become unmasked as they become increasingly challenged in school. I think yeah. that might be what you're referring to. Yeah, I would okay. agree with that. All right. And, and so generally you'll either have children who have ADHD and it seems fairly obvious to the teacher, like the moment they arrive, like we can't get this student to stop running around their room. He or she struggles with paying attention or with you know, all the other kinds of things. Whereas the way you're describing that, it sounded almost like you're thinking about the unmasking of somebody with ADHD. Yeah, I guess like just to like make a diagnosis, you have to look at more than just one environmental area. So you have to explore their experiences at school by asking teachers or seeing what their grades look like. Right. So I, I think, and maybe this isn't clear, What the, the part I'm following up on is you said, if it gets worse, don't think ADHD. 
or, or if, if it's not getting worse, don't think ADHD, but the, the reality is most of the time ADHD symptoms are fairly static. Oh. So as opposed to thinking about getting worse or better, it's more about just the assessment in mm -hmm. the school. Yes. You, you can have it unmasked as the demands get higher cognitively, but generally speaking, it's a fairly static kind of thing, I, I think. Yes, yeah, I would agree with that, yep. Okay. All right, any other high yield facts about ADHD? Um, also important to look for is social rejection. So if they don't seem to have a lot of friends or if um, they have trouble making friends um, or inadequate or like varying self-application to tasks, whether or not that's hobbies or school related, those are usually key features to look for as well that sometimes like shelf questions will kind of like cue you into an ADHD diagnosis. Um, so let me see if I understand what you're saying again. So if you have somebody who might not be able to focus on tasks at school, but in other domains is able to focus, it might be a learning disorder that we need to look at rather than ADHD. Am I on the right pathway with what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Wasn't, I wasn't sure. I would point out though, if they struggle with like sticking with a task, but they can like, they hyper focus on like mm -hmm. their video game or something, that can still be very indicative of ADHD. Mm -hmm. Because video games might be, also video games might be different because the task changes it's, every second. It's more so mentally stimulating to a lot of these kids. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so like keeping an eye out for what kind of things Activities. they can focus or not focus on. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people try to like rule out ADHD if they mention anything where a kid's actually able to focus and that's not necessarily mm -hmm. accurate. It's like the inability to control that focus. Mm -hmm. In fact, you have a comment about this later, right? I have a couple comments about ADHD. <laughs> Why don't we go ahead and jump into, uh, I think you and I talked about this before. I've made the comment to a number of students. I say something along the lines of, this presentation can be like a public speaking event, right? So if you had a communications class in college, you talk about the problem at hand, what are the challenges, what are the barriers to changing this, mm -hmm. and what's the solution kind of approach, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you have not only the issue of access to mental health care, which we talked about briefly already, but mm -hmm. you also have some great data here about the problems that are being potentially unaddressed, right? Yeah, right. So I think ADHD is a great segue there because um, so there's there's a lot of mental health issues in kids, right? Um, based on what study you read, it's up to about 20% um, have some sort of identifiable mental health condition. Um, and a lot of those aren't being treated at the level that we would expect. ADHD is interesting because it's treated in almost 80% of patients who meet criteria. Um, that is very unique compared to mood disorders, which only have about 60% treatment rate, um, according to one of the studies. Uh, are anxiety disorders ever even identified? Anxiety or disorders tend to be underdiagnosed in primary care settings in a lot of ways because it can present as somatic symptoms. So you have a kid come in and they constantly have headaches and then they have stomach aches and or they have palpitations, muscle tension, things like that. You might not think as a primary care doc who's often separating mental health and physical health as categories in your head, um, you might not make the connection between somatic symptoms and mental health conditions. As a psychiatrist, I often don't. Uh, right, because <laughs> Most of the time I don't. I think I'm like, oh, well, this is mental health issue. Right, or, are, a, I mean, it's been historically, mental health has been treated very differently than physical health. So it's mm -hmm. hard, I think, with our training even to make the connection necessarily that it's 
It's the same thing. Kind it's of. The, In fact, we're going to come back to that, right? Yes, we are. Okay. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. So th this number, roughly 20%, came up over and over and over. We saw this, right. and, and, and I'm going to throw this out here, just kind of however you tackle this. I'll be interested here. So you had a number of um, different skills, studies, um, they were longitudinal studies in some case. In some case, it was just looking at a scale. Mm -hmm. Almost all the time, no matter what scale you used, about 20% of the kids have some sort of mental health issue, severe or not, not severe, uh, moderate or major, I think was the language. I believe, yeah. And then I think um, there's this very small carve out, two out of 100 children have, children and youth have like severe mental health issues, right? Um, which I assume means behavioral disturbance that is absolutely unmanageable, maybe psychosis, maybe a severe mood disorder that presents as a bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. or suicidal behaviors potentially, right? Mm -hmm. All of the skills seem to lead towards that. Yeah, I found that fascinating, um, which we'll, we'll get into a little bit later about um, something that I found really, really interesting, but I'll, uh, to, to give a quick preview on this, um, something that's really interesting is a lot of the different scales and assessments and how we assess mental like health in kids comes to the same conclusions to the point where like even parental concern about mental illness is very heavily like predictive of actual rates on like the generally validated scales. So what you're saying, I, I'm not sure. Not sure I got that. If a parent thinks their child may have something going on that's not They're quite... They're usually right. Trust the parents. Which I found really interesting because, you know, we, we develop all these scales and we do all these different things and try to find the perfect tool. Most of the tools are sufficient, and most of the time it's... Parents think something's parents, not quite right. Parents or kids tell you something's up, or you just are interacting with the kid, and you're like, no, something's, something's a little off. And that's, again, Sons. pretty predictive. A little sus, yeah. <laughs> okay. The Try vibes on. are off. So this is fascinating to me because there's a there um, are a number of ways to screen for depression. I think the PDQ nine is PHQ. one. That, PHQ, sorry, mm. not that pretty darn quick. Um, <laughs> That's what I use. I a think lot. there is a PD. You know, it's an MDQ, mood disorder questionnaire. So the PHQ nine is a screener. There's something called the Salsa, I think, that's out there. And of all the things I've ever read about, one of the most fascinating things I saw is the ASK is as sensitive as everything else, which is ask. ask. <laughs> hey, are you depressed? Yeah, that was something that I found fascinating. So there was like this whole thing about you ask kids about suicidal ideation. One of the studies was talking about that. And you're going to get the same rates of positive answers as anonymous data that's been asked on a national level. So realistically, kids are going to be honest if you ask them. And I think that that's one of the big takeaways that I had from this entire experience of reading this stuff is like, I think so many primary care docs are afraid of, of doing the wrong thing or that they're going to miss it or that they don't have enough training to do these things. But really just asking and forming that connection and allowing people to be honest with you about mental health concerns is so impactful and makes such a difference in providing any sort of improvement yeah. right like yeah. it's T totally fascinating to me yeah they they just ask and <clears throat> let's um unless there's numbers with the problem because that that 20 percent number seems pretty solid also i think liz mentioned this about half those kids get help roughly depending on the problem obviously more in in uh and, and then you followed up on that more in uh in adhd and then 
I think the the question is, or the the way that everything I read went from that, right? Because all these papers go the same way about this persuasive case that we make. Mm-hmm. Almost all the pap- papers say, well, so we need more psychiatrists, or, or we need a different model. Exactly. But, so, but but nobody made the link for me, and I don't know if you read this. Why is it that fifty? percent of the kids aren't getting treatment? Is it because of parents being hesitant to start treatment? Is it because uh, PPCPs are not asking or primary care physicians are not asking? Is it because um, th- th- we, we don't want the treatment? I mean, th- there's, there's this... There's a lot. It's, so it's, it, a lot of the different articles had like one or two things that they mentioned. It's very multifactorial, right? So people aren't asking. Okay. Um, kids don't feel comfortable talking about it. Parents, unless you ask. Unless you ask. <laughs> but they're not going to bring it up to you. They'll, they'll bring it up, okay. Um, sometimes parents don't think it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, there's so many different things. The other thing, and there's an article a little bit um, that talked about how only like 30% of referrals to child and adolescent psychiatry things actually end up leading to treatment. Like a lot of the times you'll send the referral and it's not even going to turn into anything. They're not going to go. There's going to be a long wait time. There's all this stuff that Weston's going to get into in a little bit about the disparity there um but yeah I, I was actually really uncomfortable when i read something that said there's a average delay between onset of psychiatric symptoms in kids and intervention is eight to ten years which when we're talking children that's solid that's, development. that's an unbelievable number that is like it's it's unacceptable as a number um i also thought it was really interesting because it like most severe mental illnesses statistically present early in life um, I read a number that said 50% of them are by age 14 and 75% by 14. Or uh, 14, oh, I wrote 14 twice. I don't know what the second number was. I bet it's 18. I like, bet it was 18. I think yeah. you're, yeah. Be- because by then you will see many of the patients who have had their first episode of depression and bipolar mm-hmm. disorder. Um, adolescent depression seems to be associated with bipolar depression or bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And then quite often men are starting to have symptoms of schizophrenia by that time, women will start yeah. having onset later. Um, anxiety, there's some great data about anxiety, and I think you touched on this a little bit, where there's this fascinating story that I read at one point, point. I think it was based on Kessler's data for the National Comorbidity Survey, where uh, adolescents start having anxiety over time, that escalates, and then becomes comorbid with depression. Mm-hmm. I think you had that listed, and it's something we kind of skipped through Anything you want to add on to that? Um, I saw that it's about 75% of the time there's a comorbid depression-anxiety yeah. combination. Um, something that I found really interesting is there was a study that found about 20% of all youth had clinical levels of anxiety and 10% had were meeting DSM criteria. Yeah. Um, and of those, only about 30% were receiving any sort of treatment at all. Nobody looks for anxiety. No, because I think a lot of people have just, well, that's just part of growing it's depression. up. They're fine, it's this, it's that. They're just whatever. Or it's viewed as depression only because of the comorbidity, I think. Right, right. right. Um, insurance is a barrier. I think that's listed mm-hmm. here. I, lots of barriers you talked about. The one that a lot of the articles focused on, I, th- I think, uh, I want to say sorbet, but that wasn't the name. Axelrod. I don't know how I got sorbet out of Axelrod. Uh, <laughs> Axelrod said, we clearly don't have enough psychiatrists. The National Health... What is it? NHSA? HSRA. HSRA. I don't know what that stands for. 
um, that's the organization that seems to be involved in creating the 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 outreach and integration programs that we're going to talk about later. Oh, okay, like the the, the health, child psych services and services administration. The people in charge of the child psych access programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, HRSA. They also have uh, a lot of scholarships or or at least loan payback. Um, plans for people that are interested in going to underserved areas, it looks like. It's an administrative bureau that seems to be uh, guided towards improving public health through direct uh, integration with medical services in underserved areas. It seems a little bit different than public health. But but the HRSA said, HSRA, sorry, said, we have too many psychiatrists, child psychiatrists. Axelrod said, what? I think part of it is, is it, they're not distributed how we would like, right? So Weston read a little bit more about this than I did. This is kind of what I was like, hey, Weston, you could learn about this for me. Weston, help me out here. Weston, help me, because I've read like 30 articles Yeah, before. you got it. I'm like, be careful. Y'all are stealing all my thunder. Um, <laughs> Segway. No, just with the, I guess, what do I want to tackle first? The number of child psychiatrists. We'll just start there. Um, over the next like 10 years, I read that the demand for a child psychiatrist will exceed the supply by 20%, which there's already a shortage right now. And going to what Aaron said, how they're distributed is just very um, unequal across the United States. Um, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry would love if there was 47 child adolescent psychiatrists per 100,000 children and adolescents. And we now have 3.3 in Idaho, I believe. Yes. Idaho's the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Massachusetts, with the, the best number, is still. 26. So we're still, you know... It's only 20. about half of what they want. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I was curious about that. It was not clear to me how they came to those numbers in the Axelrod article. Um, and it wasn't... I, I mean, obviously, there's a disparity between what HSRA is saying, what Axelrod's saying. Mm -hmm. Um Interesting discussion though, right? What else did you glean out of numbers? That yeah, I think um, another thing, just back to access to care, 70% of counties in the United States don't have a child and adolescent psychiatrist in their county, which is just wild. Um, last year on my pediatric rotation, I just come off of a psychiatry one where I was with a child adolescent psychiatrist, so I was like very much... Um, <laughs> You're in that headspace. Yeah, and our pediatrician um, was great. He had slots for behavioral mental health appointments specifically because there was a need in this rural community. We had a patient and this patient just needed a lot of help. And this pediatrician did a lot of psychi psychiatric care on their own. And when we stepped out into the hall, he was like, hey, can you call this office and see what their wait time is like? And I was like, oh yeah, sure. Like, And I was like, yeah, this kid needs help call the office and they're like, oh yeah, you can send the referral over. Uh, our wait time right now is about six months. That's Which I'm like, ridiculous. this, this kid does me. not have six months. Like this kid needs help right now. And it's hard when there's just simply not child psychiatrists ready and available to take people in. It's I, I worked out patient briefly. It's, it's difficult to have an empty slot that's unscheduled. Um, it's because it's you work. I, I worked a lot of the day just to be able to generate enough income to pay the staff, 
to pay my malpractice insurance. And then it was like the last three, I think I figured out that the last three appointments of the day were the ones that actually allowed me to have my living. And mm -hmm. so if I schedule one of those empty appointments at the end, and if it's a half an hour, then that's a big chunk of, of that time, right? So being able to schedule open slots for emergencies is very difficult. And having enough people to cover everything is very difficult. It's, it's a tough challenge. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, as with any issue in healthcare, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of moving pieces going on. Um, I think, you know, we're doing a better job at increasing that number. Um, every year you'll kind of see more and more slots open up for child adolescent psychiatry fellowships. Um, I think currently we're at like 400, a little over 400. It's better than I expected. Um, yeah, like where did that number go? I remember it's a little over 400, but um, last year 17% of those went unfilled. So even though the number is increasing, we're still having a hard time meeting Filling those, filling those slots yeah. and it's it's sad because the need is there and it's very much real and it's happening right now um so are you going into child psychiatry i'm actually really considering it i've really enjoyed working with um children and teenagers i think they're a great population to work with that there's have. a lot of people in our class that are talking about yeah child psych which is fantastic hawaii has an amazing child psych program by the way I'm applying there, Hawaii, if you're listening. Give him an interview. <laughs> <laughs> I, I called it, I, when I was applying, I just couldn't afford a ticket out there to interview, and mm -hmm. I wasn't sure I could afford tickets to fly back and forth to visit family. Um, but the people there are truly amazing. When I talk to the people in the organization, they seem just like great people. Plug for Hawaii. <laughs> um, um, and even with the, you know, people like strategies on how to increase the number. We are increasing the number of slots. Um, child adolescent psychiatry is one of the, I think the only fast-track fast fellowship you can do. So starting your third year of your general psychiatry residency, you can start working towards your um, child adolescent fellowship. Um, so it can be done in five years instead of the six if you were to do it separately. Um, I think another thing too, and you, were, you talked earlier about, you know, am I gonna be able to even pay my staff one of the things that is a struggle across all medical specialties, but I think especially within PEDS subspecialties, is coding um, and reimbursement for just any any healthcare for kids. You see across the board, it's a lower amount compared to an adult subspecialist in the same. PEDS generalists make more money than PEDS subspecialty doctors, which I find fascinating. Well, it's interesting because aren't children just little adults? Oh my no. god. <laughs> Don't even get me started. That is pediatricians <laughs> in here. Ooh, that is a pet peeve sense. Yeah. I, I saw that coming a mile away. Couldn't resist throwing out that red If meat. looks could kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, yeah, kids, their bodies and their minds are more complicated. And so I think, you know, this goes back, you know, lots of moving pieces, but we need people in our advocacy and our government saying, hey, like if we really care about this, we need to increase reimbursement and that'll tr you know, trickle over to, okay, yeah, we have people wanting to go into this because they know they're gonna be able to pay off their loans. Yeah. That's a big deal. Mm -hmm. What else have you got on, on this topic? Um, kind of another approach that's, I think beginning, getting more popular across all specialties as well is more of a, um, 
integration with other healthcare professionals. So, you know, maybe instead of pumping out more child psychiatrists, which would be great, and I think it would be good, we also have the ones we currently have leading teams of other healthcare professionals. We're I'm so about. glad you talked about that because that's a huge part of what I think, yeah. what I was finding okay. in the data. So is I like won't steal your thunder on that. Um, yeah, just to give a quick comment on that, it's actually super interesting, but in child adolescent psychiatry training, they are required to do a consultation rotation where you learn how to be a consult, liaison person. I find so, that really so interesting. So CNL is actually, that's interesting because I, I saw that and consult liaison is within a hospital usually for acute medical conditions that have psychiatric overlays, but this is a consultation service that, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah so it's the concept of this is something that's a big part of the future of the field. So you need to be able to manage be it. doing consultations. So, because integration is huge, which we'll get into in a little bit. I'm gonna roll through some things that you spent hours on really, really quickly. <laughs> That's okay. To kind of get to the heart of where I wanna go, especially since we're already at almost 36 minutes. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I could talk about this for hours and hours, so you have to cut me off, please. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm going to say just a couple of things, and, and I'll give you a chance to comment on them. Okay. First of all, it's interesting that Axelrod is saying more, more, more and HSRA is saying, now nah, we're good. And I found it interesting because the Betancourt article that you had mm -hmm. said essentially, hey, we have some programs, and these programs we're gonna talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. They're in roughly 30 states now, and why haven't all the doctors jumped on board? This is clearly the best thing ever, <laughs> right? And, and what it looks like is that people that feel pretty comfortable are taking care of the psych mm -hmm. and people that aren't are looking for answers. Right. So I think what's what's really hard is that so much of, of this falls on the individual provider and how comfortable they are. It, it falls on how much training they've had. Like, for example, I worked with a pediatrician who um, managed a lot of behavioral meds. He had kids on depression, anxiety medications. He had kids on ADHD medications, and he would have med-only visits with those kids. Um, he's very comfortable with some basic psychiatry meds. Was that down in St. George? This was in Draper. Okay, I was going to say there's a. I think there's a pediatrician in St. George that writes more ADHD scripts than all the other psychiatrists in that valley combined. That you know, that's interesting. But it makes and sense. In fact, it was it's Dr. Twiggs, one of his uh, children, rotated with me. Oh, funny. Yeah. Small world. It is a small world. Uh, no, it, it, but like, you know what I mean? Like there's a, there's a level of individual comfort mm -hmm. that plays a role in that. Um, one of the articles that I read found that the biggest barriers that pedi primary care pediatricians were finding in helping fill that gap was one, the difficulty with referrals, right? So mm -hmm. it's hard to get referrals. It's hard to trust that they're going to actually get in. And two, they didn't feel like they were adequately trained. Um, and again, it's, it, it falls onto that aspect of individual comfort level. Um, a lot of physicians were statistically more comfortable providing screenings and then referring out than actually providing the treatment. The problem is, is that again, those referrals don't necessarily go anywhere and there's um, some outcomes data that there's more, like higher rates of treatment initiation with doing it collaboratively in-house than waiting for the referral. Like I, I read the treatment initiation rate was like 99.4% in a collaborative care model versus 54.2% if you refer out. I'm gonna totally interrupt you because you're now jumping to some language we're gonna talk about more, right? 
so, so just very globally, we're going to jump into the idea that with the providers who don't feel comfortable with care, they're looking for something more. Mm-hmm. Most of those models have some level of involvement with a, a child psychiatrist, either from a case consultation to a all, all the way to somebody nested in the building with you in a mm-hmm. home, right? And we're going to talk about those three versions of, of that range, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that's important here is almost all of those versions have some sort of we're also going to teach you how to interact differently with the patients you are seeing. Right. Right. So that you have comfort in even working with these patients. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of different approaches to how we're going to have a physician involved handle this. Right. So right. there's there's an aspect of doing mostly consultation. Right. There's also the what's idea that model called. Is that the consultation model? I, I don't, I'm not going to name it. I don't know what it was officially called. I thought, I think, because there's three models essentially, right? Yeah. It's, and and it's the, the first one is the, con, we'll call it consultation. Yeah, there's, there's a consultation model. There's a collaboration model, which is more the... Kind of, hey, I, you tell me all about the patient. Here's the what I would recommend. Um, or maybe they need to come see me. Exactly. So. But, but it's as much as the, here's the advice I give you. Put it in place, call me back if it doesn't work kind of thing. Yeah. Consultation, collaboration versus integration. Those are like the three different. And, and it seems like the case, the case, like the, that's a, a little, like, it's harder to find that. It's the more rural areas. And then the collaboration, there might be somebody not necessarily in building, but maybe in the city or in, in the, the region. Exactly. So, and I think in, in like a major urban mm-hmm. setting, it's easier to have more of the collaborative in, like integration or even more it. the integration exactly right? yeah. like you're gonna have you can have a child and adolescent psychiatrist because you have a bunch of them in the city like you can take one to come work with you but if you're in a more rural area in one of those counties that's far from access to care it it's, might make more sense to have a consultation slash kind of teaching the primary care docs approach right the other thing i thought was interesting was with the integration model it almost looked like the uh, PP, the I'm sorry, not the PPPC, the PPCP, not the that one. CAPs? Uh, what's the CAP? Child Adolescent Psychiatrist? Yes. The, the Child Psychiatrist, it seemed like um, they might actually not be scheduled to work every hour and that they had the ability to say, oh, here's an emergency, you come to this room now. And they were almost, it was like all day long they were basically bounced from room to room on an emergency basis. I... Did, did you read anything that helped you understand that model the, the way I was wondering about it? I think it, it's hard because I've read so many articles that now I'm going to get them confused in my head and I don't want to speak on what wasn't... Fair enough. If I don't fully remember where I got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about these different models and efficacy in just a moment. And leading into that again, uh, the conversation about helping physicians uh, be better at what they're doing, right? Yeah. So so there was an interesting article that you had in the in the mess of articles. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it was great. Um, and essentially what they said is we taught physicians how to communicate better and they didn't really learn how to communicate better. But they had different attitudes and that was better. Right. So what was interesting is I think I think I'm thinking of the same study as you. Yeah. Um, the thought was like, well, you know, either we'll teach them these, these skills. Mm-hmm. Or we'll at least get them more comfortable thinking that this is something that they have the ability to do. 
we will get them thinking where they're more comfortable with even approaching these topics. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of normalizing and decreasing that sharp divide between the mental and physical health and making them feel like, oh no, well maybe we don't have all the skills, but we have... The ability to talk. We ha- Yeah, we have the ability to talk. We have a leg to stand on. Like, we have a right to talk about this with our patients and not feel like it's so like out of our wheelhouse. I thought it was really interesting. I'm, I'm a little bit cynical, right? You may have noticed along the way. <laughs> I get a Charlie horse right here sometimes. All of my medical students know exactly what that means. Weston, actually, though. I, oh, wow. Throw him under the bus. <laughs> wow. Um, so, so being cynical, what I read in this study was we spent nine hours over almost three months teaching physicians how to use some things like CBT, motivational interviewing, and so forth. And what we found was they didn't really pick up on those skills, or at least all of the skills that we taught, mm-hmm. only some portion of them at best right after the uh, session. But, but so, so we didn't really meet our endpoint. Our, our program didn't work. So we looked for something else, and everybody was happy with it. So we got that. Well, I think yeah. the thing is they didn't get the outcome they wanted, but they were still getting more kids treated. Potentially, yeah. So, so I think there was something that changed that they liked. I think yeah. what I, again, being a little bit cynical, what I took away was that there was not better motivational interviewing, there was not use of CBT, there was not use of any of these skills that were taught, yeah. <laughs> but it was brought up more often maybe, the issues. Right, and I think that that's, again, that was back the to one of the biggest issues with this care is that people aren't talking about it. Right, which, which makes you kind of wonder, do we, what, what if we just, like, tattooed like ask on somebody's hand right well that would probably be a lot more cost effective (laughs) (laughs) no Um, i found that really interesting in the context of one of the articles as well um that was basically saying that like all of these different clinicians received the same resources um some of them received training on how to use the resources some of them didn't uh and even though they all had the same resources they were getting different results um, with those resources. And I think, again, it's because these people are more comfortable using them because they learned about them, even if they don't know Implement how to them. use them yeah. correctly. Um, yeah. What was interesting about that study, though, is there's no statistically significant difference um, associated with any sort of prior background in mental health. So, like, 22% of the people who were involved had prior training in child behavior, 6% in development, and 8% in counseling, and they fared no different than their peers who had no... That's funny. I, I must have glossed over that because I thought that was only the, uh, there's no difference in the, between the groups, but I think that was, I was thinking that was before the study started, not the after. Now, this was the aspects of mental health communication skills training that predict parent and child outcomes in pediatric primary care by Wisso. Yeah, Wisso. I think one of the articles I saw him, it was Larry, and one of them was Lawrence. Lawrence, and it looks like this is a guy that really, really cares about delivery of pediatric mental health care. I, I saw his yeah. name come up and I was interested in following up there on him. There were quite a few names that I saw mentioned in multiple articles, which yeah. I Yeah, no, again, I, I thought that was about the, the two groups are equivalent going into the study, but I think you're saying they were also equivalent coming out. That was something that I read, yeah, was okay. that there was no, at least not statistically, any st- significant differences. So, so even though one of the barriers seems to be that primary care or PPCPs, pediatric primary care providers, have hesitancy or feeling like they don't know the skill set, even when they learn those, they're still hesitant to use those, some of the people. Yeah. And, and so maybe that's not the answer, but that's clearly a big part of all of these programs. We want our primary care providers to be better at what they're doing. And so there's always, this is going to be a component of all these programs, I think. 
with that in mind, and, and there'll be nuances to that, but with that in mind, why don't you introduce us now to the, the kind of the types of programs that you read about yeah. the, and, and what those look like and, and maybe how they were helpful. Can I share a speculation first? Yes, and also make sure you tell me about the Surgeon General I, in 1999. Yes, I would love to. Um, so something that I, and granted, I don't know this for data-wise, and I know that's important, um, I feel like perhaps we are jumping the gun with trying to teach skills before we get people comfortable talking about mental health. Because a lot of these outcomes seem associated with making them more comfortable discussing it. And I feel like if we're trying to skip that step and just get to in implementing techniques, you're not gonna implement techniques as well if you're not even comfortable talking about it. And so maybe we should s take a step back and work on that first and then move forward. I'm going to follow up on that because I, I'm under the impression that I can always do something easier if I watch somebody do it. Right? For me to use a medication for the first time, I think you guys saw this in MedStaff yesterday, we were talking about um, Egalmi, which I'm not going to try and say it, dexmedetotidine. Oh, don't um, Sounds good to me. <laughs> uh, we were talking about how it had been used in the hospital. Clearly we have patients with agitation and yet everybody's waiting for somebody else to use it first, right? To see what that experience is. So see one, do one, teach one is kind of a fascinating idea that is heard in medicine. And um, my suspicion is that most of my students come to me after primary care physician rotations feeling very comfortable with mental health topics. And I don't, I don't entirely understand um, what happens that some people leave and maybe have that hesitancy, but I feel very positive that the primary care providers in this state do a, a, Overall the students I see coming through those programs through those um, Teaching experiences do fairly well with this. Yeah, and I think it there's a, a question of um, Are physicians who are more likely to teach more also more comfortable having these conversations Potentially so, but 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 I also think that it's the, the my I think my point is if you had gone back twenty years ago, we would be having the conversation. Nobody dares talk about this. Right. And now we're having teaching physicians who commonly right. talk about it. So I I think I, I I think my hope is that see one do one teach one may change this trajectory as well to to yeah. create that comfort level. I, but, I hope so. But yes, it's. It has to be comfortable, right? Right. It's hard for me to do things that I didn't see somebody do. Hey, I want you to go do a, a neurologic exam. Well, I really haven't watched one yet, but you want me to do it? Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> how exactly? I mean, I, I practiced on my wife yesterday where I was like <laughs> using the hammer on her knee, but. Uh, I almost got the reflex once. I almost <laughs> got, yeah. Right. No, I, I know what you mean. And I think that there is, it is interesting to kind of come at it from, from that perspective. And I think it, it is exciting to see where we might go from this. I also think it's part of why I got lost in the weeds occasionally when I was reading all this because some of this data is from 2007 and it's like well yes this may have been true in 2007 I would like to see a study from the last couple of years that's evaluating the same things because national attitudes have started shifting mental health has become a lot more talked about than I think it was 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Okay I'm still in your thunder. In 1999 the Surgeon General said in 1999, the Surgeon General called on pediatricians to improve screening and referral for children's mental health. I don't know that it worked. I don't necessarily think that it did either. But something started to change because we now have this alternate strategy, that's the, 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 this range of strategies that's being implemented widely. Right. And I, I also think one of the issues is that a lot of people did the screening part, but then they didn't do anything with the screenings. 
Um, I read a, a, a study and it was kind of talking about how one of the most important things with a screening is do you follow up on positives and negatives, mm -hmm. right? So if someone screens negative, that doesn't necessarily mean they don't have whatever it is, especially with some of these mental health conditions because of all those outside factors, right? If you have a parent who says something, you should ask whether it's negative or positive. You should have the conversation, especially with teenagers, you should have conversations about mental health with their parents and also perhaps without, because some kids might not feel comfortable talking about it in front of their parents. Some kids might not feel comfortable talking about it to you. It's all about that like therapeutic relationship that you build. I want to go back to that skills training thing. I know this is a total step back, and That's I'm okay. finally going to have you talk about the three different models. Okay. There was a time when I thought this data might be faked. <laughs> oh, which data? The WISAO article, the mental health communication skills training one. And the reason why is because they had almost every physician they approached opt in to help with the study, and almost every parent opt into the study. And I decided either I needed them sailing cars for me, used cars <laughs> potentially, or whoever is there, I mean, that, that, whoever was involved in that, getting people involved, they were magicians, I think. Because <laughs> that, that, that acceptance and opting into the study was super high. Super high, right? Like I said, I, yeah. initially I was like, this study's faked. This, this is not real data, but when they when they didn't find their endpoints and were scratching for something else to publish, and I thought, like, okay, this well, maybe it wasn't faked. I was more willing to accept it. All right, the three models. Yes. I want to I hear this. I want to hear examples of those. I'm going to sit back and listen for a few minutes okay, and sip my Diet Coke. Let's hope that I don't stumble over what I'm trying to say too much because sometimes I get lots in the weeds and I will misspeak, and I'm sorry in advance. Um, okay, so we have, again, it's the, the integration, consultation, and collaboration-based Con Consultation is least engaged, integration is most engaged. Correct, okay. correct. So it, uh, on the spectrum of how involved, I guess I would say the child-adolescent psychiatrist is, it's least would be the consultation, mid-ground would be collaboration, and then integration is like that full, um, there they're there in person or can be there in person. They're actively seeing the patient, not just talking to the provider. Um, so I feel like I wanna start kind of with perhaps the consultation concept since that is the least uh, in-depth sort of one. And in a lot of ways that is what these, um, these child psych access programs we've been talking about a little bit, we've hinted at here and there throughout this podcast. Um, that's kind of what they're kind of doing. So um, a lot of times these are phone consultations, phone consultation services for primary care physicians. So the thought, I guess, uh, according to the, the website that the National Network of Child Psychiatry Access Programs, it's a .org national website thing, um, they were saying that a lot of, a lot of the time, um, hang on, let me, let me get my train of thought because I'm speaking faster than I'm thinking. Um, so they, their thought is like having training and consultation services for PCPs from child adolescent psychiatrists. So initially it's going to be like, oh, I can call you up about whatever I'm uncomfortable with. So maybe initially someone's not even comfortable treating low levels of anxiety or ADHD or whatever else. That's, starting an SSRI. Right, right. So let's say they're not comfortable with starting an SSRI. They don't know which one to start because there's a million different SSRIs they could call, have that conversation. They're gonna come away from it with an answer for that patient. 
they're also going to come away with it with a little bit more knowledge about SSRIs. And I think part of the thought of implementing these programs is that initially you're going to get a ton of calls and you're going to be teaching them. But as time goes on, they're going to get comfortable with these things and you're going to have more complex calls and it's going to help kind of them grow through learning from their child psychiatry peers, basically. Um, and these have really taken off. They're available in most states at this point. I was checking the website as of this year. Um, there's coverage in almost every single state. There's only partial location-based coverage in California and Pennsylvania, and there's no program at all yet in Idaho, South Dakota, Arizona, or Ohio. Wait a minute, Utah has a program? Utah has a program. Very cool. People working together. Who knew? <laughs> it, but it's, and again, they're, they're implemented a little bit differently based on where you're at in the country. Um, it's a state-by-state state type of thing. That's why some states haven't even done it. But it's it's rapidly growing, right? So one of the articles I'd read, there were only about 30 states that were doing it at that point. Okay. And it's, that was the one I think I read. Yeah. yeah and it, as of, so that's why I checked on the website because I wanted to see where it was at now. Mm-hmm. And it's in most states at this point. So it seems like this is something that's happening. At least this is happening. See, when I when I read that article, I was under the impression that one of the three type, or and, and there's a lot of forms. We're, we're kind of lumping a we're, little bit. Yeah, we're making categories to make it simpler. Um, but I was under the impression that one of these three was in 30 of the states. But what you're saying is consultation alone is in most states now, in most areas. Yes, okay. yeah. And is, is that through telemedicine? Is that kind of how that... So... Generally, yeah. Again, it's it's one of those things where it's very variable based on resources, based on how many child psychiatrists are there, based on how many children are in the state. Like it's, there are way too many variables to make like a conclusive statement on what's like mostly happening, right? So the concept is there's some form of consultation service in most states at this point, which makes sense, right? Because that's the one that requires the least amount of resources. It uh, allows you to have the broadest sort of access. Um, It's also beneficial, there was another article that likes these programs because it helps provide data for public health issues um, because different, the more calls that you're getting on a certain topic, like let's say you're getting a ton of calls on eating disorders. Okay, in that area it might be smart to implement public health initiatives about eating disorder awareness because you're you're now getting a little bit extra information about what's going on in your community that you might not otherwise see. So there's something, just just one, I think you've kind of wrapped that Yeah, that's up. the, the consultation the concept. Was there, was there any data that said how effective it was that you came across? Um, Again, this, there's not data for effectiveness. This is more about, at this point, we're talking about just getting access to care more about, whether that's access through a psychiatrist or through a PPCP who is now more willing to engage the subject. Let me search my notes real quick so I don't I don't speak think I saw anything along those lines. I think what it comes down to is you're going to get, there's not hard data, right? But the the idea is like if you have these consults. Access. Access increases. It's about addressing the barrier that exists, which is the comfort level of treatment. Exactly. And was there any data on um, willingness to accept that engagement from the physicians? Because I know we looked at one article. I want to say it was the one that involved Maryland, West Virginia, and maybe suburb of Boston or something like that. And what they said essentially was, well, that was the Wissau article, right? Everybody we approached was willing to join. Mm -hmm. And then some of the men didn't follow up, but mostly everybody else did, Mm -hmm. I think was the way they said that. And uh, 
I guess I'll throw it out to the three of you who are potentially future pediatricians. Um, how comfortable are you calling somebody and saying, hey, I, I'm not sure how I feel about this. Talk to me. So something that I found, I, I, don't, I can't remember which study it was now, but there was this idea that, oh, it was this study, the, the one about Project Teach based in New York. It was some, by someone named Gadomsky. Um, it was about if training actually helps PCPs integrate mental health care. Um, and they were saying any sort of training increases confidence. It also increases implementation. But the bigger thing is that it helps them feel more comfortable talking to specialists. So being taught anything about mental health makes you feel like, oh, I can communicate about this maybe a little bit more intelligently than I felt like I could. So then they're more like willing to ask for help. Okay. So, so was that, I know some of the models, they had a child psychiatrist go in and teach. Again, this was part of the training. How do you engage? How do you do the CBT stuff? How do you do the motivational interviewing? And then call for, I think, call for consultation after maybe on that model. I don't recall. Same kind of idea then. Yeah, Just get to know the person. About providing training on uh-huh. basic things. Um, also providing, providing consultations to these uh-huh. physicians and helping them with referrals. So providing that support to make those go through maybe a little bit. So just having the, the primary or the pediatric and adole- the child and adolescent psychiatrist show up and talk about things made that consultation easier. Right. Because so there was another article that I read that was interesting because I didn't I didn't know this, but and I'm going to use a very non-medical term real quick. There's some beef between the fields. Historically, <laughs> so there was the, there was this article by this guy Fritz um, about effective collaboration between pediatricians and child and adolescent psychiatrists, and there's some thought that like you know this consultation process is hard because the fields have some fundamental differences um, that again make it people blame the other for the lack of understanding for for how things are working out. They're like, well, it's the other person's fault. It's all these things, and it comes from a lot of things, right? So it comes from the fact that you know, pediatrics had this huge golden era where we were figuring out vaccines. We were figuring out all these interventions that gave us like immediate results. And so a lot of that field, a lot of general physical health um, was coming out of like, oh, we have solutions. We just need to figure out what the solution is and we can implement it. And that's that. There's an answer to everything we're looking for. Psychiatry obviously doesn't necessarily assume every, it's not a one size fits all thing, right? Well, I I think even our best treatments, our NNTs are Exactly. Not where we would want them. They're not NNTs of two, right? Exactly. And so it's it's a lot more personalized, and it, there's not as simple if, if I do X, it'll prevent Y, which will do this. It's more like for this individual patient, how can we figure out what will work to help them manage? And the endpoint's not as, like, concrete. It's more how can we help them function versus how can we fix this So So pediatricians thing. are calling saying, I have somebody who says this, this, and this, what am I supposed to do? How do I fix their anxiety so they no longer have anxiety? Versus how do we teach them how to cope with anxiety? How do we help them manage anxiety so it doesn't take over their life? How how do I see if an SSRI is helping with the anxiety, which have FDA approvals in pediatric anxiety? Exactly. How do I manage the boxed warning of suicidality in adolescents and children? Exactly. And there's also this, this idea of generally you know pediatricians a, a big part of being a primary care doc is focusing on reassurance you want to reassure your patients and their families and help minimize their concern not minimize it in the sense of like oh that's not important but be like no this is normal like there is a lot of variability in what is normal and that's a, a whole part of being a primary care doctor versus i think and i i think that leads to kind of a discomfort 
with allowing that anxiety to persist, right? Because we want to reassure and then it's okay and now everyone's comfortable. Child psychiatry, I think, is a lot more comfortable directly confronting those hard conversations and being okay with ending an appointment with the patient still like Having upset, anxiety. still anxious, still an ongoing issue, right? Yeah. There's also the question of like a practical differences of just how practices are typically run, right? So primary care offices are pushing for a lot of high volume of shorter interactions. Eight minutes, mm -hmm. maybe? Yeah, and it's an issue, right? But like the thought is you can still develop those really deep relationships because you're seeing them over a very long period of time. You're seeing this kid since they're born until they're up to like 20 sometimes. So you have a long time to build that relationship. And so there is that sense of rapport because you met them a bunch of really short times, but you met them enough times that you build that relationship versus with child psychiatry, you're gonna have lower patient volume, but it's gonna be really intense interactions. So you're gonna be building that relationship faster but it's hopefully not as long. You're not going to be doing it for 20 years, hopefully, theoretically. It is a chronic illness, usually. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, in child psych in particular, like, you, you That's don't want, true. You you don't want, want to help these people be able to manage so that they're not having to see a psychiatrist for 60, Life. 70, 80 years <laughs> if it's something like... As a child psychiatrist, mild probably anxiety. not, and mild anxiety, probably not as well. <laughs> right. So I think it's just, there's a lot of... So the beef is there. But it doesn't seem to be something that really came up in the articles we looked at. Right. So I think that that's I think that's part of why, like, though we don't so we don't feel comfortable with training, necessarily making a consultation call. If you don't know what you're talking about, you're going to be anxious to call the, the consult, right? I mean, we learned that in in clinical rotations. <laughs> if you've ever been on a rotation, they're like, "Hey, call neurology and ask about this." You're going to be terrified, and you're going to want to avoid it if you can. You're going to be like, "No way in heaven, I'm doing that." <laughs> right. So I think that there's that that fear um, from that aspect. There's also a, a, a lot of fundamental differences between the fields and how we approach issues. Um, and a lot of that's historical context more so than, I think, end goals. I'm going to go ahead and stop us on this topic there. We'll leave it at, yeah, it might not be as easy to call as you'd think. Which is why we need to make people more comfortable calling. <laughs> and more comfortable asking about mental health, too, because right. once you start doing that, you'll learn enough, maybe, or your experiences will grow to the point where it's easier to have those calls, I suspect. Uh, the second model, take me to collaborative care. Right, so collaborative care is that, oh, I got on a whole tangent there. I am so sorry. I didn't even realize I got that far off. <laughs> I told you, I was going to, you got to interrupt me here. I am. Um, so collaborative care is the, um, it, it, it's the kind of halfway point. So it's like the, you're doing a little bit of consults, but you're also working together for the same patients, right? So sometimes this will be like, you're seeing this patient they're also seeing a child psychiatrist outside you guys are working together to come to the same solution and like tackling it together but not necessarily at the same time having this conversation in-house doing everything as a team it's more like you know if you're seeing a a pulmonologist and a cardiologist they might talk to each other on occasion but they're not actively working on your team necessarily right so this is kind of that aspect of um, you're, you're, you're not necessarily the exact same team, but you're both working towards the same goal, I guess. Does that make sense? Did I word that in a way that made sense? Yeah, I think what you're saying is it's not I call you and get a consult. It's, hey, we have enough people in the area. You're working with this person. Maybe the relationship is close enough that you can get somebody into that provider quickly enough to uh, get care, not have that nine-month wait. And then you're 
maybe having questions periodically that come up about, hey, this medication might be making anxiety worse. Hey, this medication might be making uh, diabetes worse. Right. So right, those kinds right. of conversations where you're collaborating on the care and, and yeah. That. So that's kind of with the concept of um, a couple of the articles talked a little bit about how we need to be treating mental health conditions like other chronic conditions. Right. So we can we can help manage. For example, primary gonna, care. Okay, yeah. I'm going to pull you back to Please. this one in a minute. So now I want you to go to the third. Before we come back to this, I'm yeah. telling you, I am going to go down so many rabbit holes okay, here. But I'm, I'm going to just push you to the third one Let's now. Let's do it. Um, so integration, in, integrative care. There's this concept within pediatrics of doing something called a. Oh, I'm going to butcher what it's called. It's some, something along the lines of a, a healthcare home. Yeah, that's the language that's used. The idea is that you can go to one center if I understand correctly, yeah. and there are specialties there. There might be one uh, asthma specialist. There might be one specialist for diabetes, childhood diabetes. There might be one psychiatry specialist, and then there are a number of pediatricians. And then probably, uh, depending on the location, you may have case managers, mm -hmm. or you might have therapists, social workers, psychologists. And so, so you have this suite of, um, of providers available in one home. And right. it's it's quite different, if I understand correctly, than what we see often, which is I'm going to Tosh, which is where all the orthopedic surgeons are. <laughs> I'm now going to um, the imaging center on Redwood Road because that's yeah. where the MRIs are. Th this is generally funded through uh, Medicare, Medicaid dollars, uh, public health dollars, right? The idea yes. is populations have less access to health care, more difficulty getting to those places, can now right. have everything in one center and help getting there and back. Right, and it, it helps with the concept of having that continuity of care, right? So like, if we're gonna, that's not the word I mean. That's not what I meant, but I'll, I'll explain. Well, it is continuity of care, it, right? Yeah, so like because, you send that referral, Because you're handing like, it right off, and it's in the same building. Exactly. You can walk somebody over. There's no missed appointments. They walk over to the appointment place. They know where to find it. Mm -hmm. They don't have to find a new location. And they also know quite often they can get a voucher for transportation to that location. And I think to an extent, you're also going to be more comfortable. Parents will be more comfortable seeing a specialist that they know, personally knows their pediatrician that they already trust. Yep. Um, and then kids aren't having to miss as much school because they're, they can go to one place and do multiple appointments versus, okay, now I'm here and then I have to take you out again another day and then that's, it, it snowballs to a point where it's like, how much do we think this is worth it versus this helps take that question out of it. I think you can also shoot to have multiple appointments on the same day, right? Your right. 10 o'clock appointment is with your pediatrician. Your 11 o'clock appointment is with your uh, pulmonologist to look at your asthma. Your one o'clock appointment is to address anxiety. Exactly, and the something, the reason that I loved this so much is because that was what the doc who I worked with in Draper did. He had an in-house um, team of therapists. So when he was man managing like mental health conditions, he would adjust their medications and then either before or after, they would have their therapy appointment at the same time. They're already missing school, they're gonna get their meds touched and then they're gonna get their actual therapy and then it's going to all tie back in together and if you're confused about oh your doc changed this med let me just go run down the hall so i know what's going on and ask them we can have a, a quick face-to-face -face conversation that's easier than oh let's send emails back and forth let's try to call each other and coordinate who can answer their phone when um so yeah that's kind of the the idea is like it's all in one place and one home, one home. <laughs> and mental health care is being treated the same as other chronic conditions as not being separate, but I mean, in this case, being literally in the same facility. 
I was going to ask you if you had a preference of the three models. I think I it's do. obvious. I well, so this is a really this is a big passion thing for me because this is kind of what I want to do with my future career. Um, my love of psych and my peds brain. I really want to be able to do this kind of thing in my own future career, um, just because I think it's really important and I think that we shouldn't separate mental health from physical health. I think it's all interrelated and it affects each other and. We were going to come back to that topic at one point. I think one of the articles that focused on education of the providers was something along the lines of, hey, when you ask Calor, Rubor, Dolor, right, it's the same as Siggy Caps, right? You mm -hmm. ask questions, you do an assessment, you, you formulate a treatment plan. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's mental health or, or physical health. Yeah. Now you were going down a rabbit hole before I totally cut you off and said <laughs> go to the third module. Do you remember what that, that rabbit hole? I do. I was going to go into the thing, the article by Ginsburg about the open trial of the anxiety action plan because I think it's a good example of. I read that. That this. was the one I axed. Uh, this not one was talk so interesting, not for the fact of the specifics of this. Called AXAP, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good pun. Good pun. Sorry, I was slow on the uptake there. Okay, but stay on target. <laughs> so the, the <laughs> sorry, I get excited. Um, so the thing with this is it, it's a good example of how we can approach mental health, um, tackling mental health in primary care the same way we handle other chronic issues, right? So it, the idea is we, we modeled this anxiety action plan after the CDC's asthma action plan that's really common and it's really commonly used. It's very familiar to pediatricians. So they modeled it after this plan, and then they use things that are considered standard of care in psych uh, the psych aspect, right? So they're using psychoeducation, exposure, cognitive restructuring, problem solving, relaxation, like all these things that have that aspect, but they're using it in a way that's familiar and comfortable and in that way easier to implement. I think the physicians were actually providing some of the therapy. Does that yeah, sound right? Yes. Right. The thing I found most interesting about this article was the kids loved it, mm -hmm. the docs loved it. I'm sorry, not the kids. The parents loved it, the docs loved it, and the kids said, I don't see any difference. And <laughs> hey, that's not a loss, <laughs> right? So Maybe. It depends on the time, right? It depends on the time and if, yeah. if you're competing with something that's more important. But at the moment, at least, it's an interesting pathway. The other thing that I find fascinating about that is that after three hours of training, physicians who I don't think tend to do therapy well are at least having parents saying, hey, something's better. And I think t there's an extent of parents being comfortable working with pediatricians. And when it's with mental health, it's such a sensitive topic that it's easier to talk to someone you already know a lot of times than it is to go tell all of it to someone new, right? So I think the parents liked that, hey, this is someone who's been seeing my kid for eight, 10 years. And now they're the ones that are helping them with their mental health. It's, it's comfortable. And I think that's the whole idea of this is, if we treat it like we treat other healthcare issues. It becomes easier to address. It's easier for everyone. It's Everyone's a lot more comfortable. I want to jump in on one more thing here. A couple of other things about this that I found fascinating. First of all, uh, I better, better go back and say, generally speaking, I think physicians think they're better therapists than they actually are. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and so there are physicians who do a great deal of work to become good therapists, mm -hmm. but I think to simply say, well, I'm a doctor, so I know what I'm doing, might be... Some hubris? Uh, 
Yes. Um, <laughs> the second thing is this this uh, study didn't have any sort of random, didn't have any control. It was, I think it was a, an exploration study at best. Um, and it was fascinating that the kids were screened using the SCARED, S-C-A-R-E-D. Yeah. That's the tool. Now, I'm not going to let you go down the rabbit hole on that. I'm going to okay. hold you off. And in fact, you went down the rabbit hole on screening processes that I think we're not going to talk about. I am completely fine with that. That was just, again, I found a billion articles and then I just kind of, uh, they consumed me a little bit. I put way too many hours into this. <laughs> well, if we want, we can also come back and do a podcast on screening for mental health issues in adolescence. And it's mostly done at this point, right? And so that's something that we could also throw together. Um, I want to go ahead and, and wind down then, um, unless there's something that's burning that you need to mention. Let me scroll. I, I feel like I've hit all of the, the big points, right, that I wanted to talk about, which is the different approaches to doing it, kind of pros and cons a little why bit. Why you like each. the home so much. Why I like it, why I'm passionate about it, and how realistically there is a there is a big role for pediatricians, pediatricians primary care docs to help meet those needs. It seems like, depending on how numbers go, it's inevitable. Right? Yeah, and I think that the, that's a big part of it is like, this is something that needs to happen and it looks like it's heading in that direction. Um, so rather yeah. than give your close out thoughts, let's see what uh, first Allie and Liz wanna throw out there. Any. Uh, thoughts, take-homes from this that you want to throw out there? I mean, I think, you know, obviously, ideally, the home method is great because, you know, that kid isn't having to go to lots of different places. Um, but there's also, I feel like, a lot of great advantages of that collaborative model. And I think you were asking, too, what can we do to make providers more comfortable with those consults? And I think it goes back to the see one, do one, teach one. Even as medical students or as residents, seeing that be done now so that as soon as we're practicing, we will feel comfortable with that and can already start to provide that care for kids. As far as consultations go, I don't. I, I have a terribly hard time saying the medical students should call an attending and do a consultation <laughs> because I don't, I don't feel like it's fair to put a student in that setting. On the other hand, I think it's very reasonable to have a medical student call another medical student to do a consult. Of course, the consult's happening on a higher level as well, but um, I think that would be a fascinating mm -hmm. way to tackle that. Even just seeing our attending call and do or one. calling a resident even is helpful. Yeah, those mm -hmm. things would all be a little bit easier. Interesting take home, I like it. Yeah, I feel like just in the last couple of months, I've gotten really good at calling and asking or ask, just asking for help in general because there's a lot of things that you feel like you have a good grasp on until you get into like a clinical practice setting and you're like, oh, I really don't know how I, this actually presents or what I should really be looking for. So it's just like keeping a hold of that, like kind of naive side of being a medical student that you don't, you like don't know everything and it's okay to call and ask for help and using more of a teamwork mindset that like keeping that in the back of your head when you actually do like go into practice on your own then yeah and making sure that wherever you are practicing you're doing what you can to get people access to care whether or not it's consultation or integrative options that are available use your resources and the strengths of others too you're never yeah. so far into your training that you can't ask for help yeah well you guys know more cliches than i do <laughs> yeah you're welcome <laughs> weston um i think my big takeaway right now is take wins where you can get them. If mm. that win right now is as a 
primary care provider, I start asking my patients about mental health stuff. And if you weren't doing that before, that's a win. That might change lives in the mm-hmm. future. If you're already doing that, maybe take some time, study up on some drugs that you haven't prescribed in a while that you can get more comfortable with so that you can increase access to care. Interesting take home. I like them. I'm going to hold you to one minute. Okay, I'll, I'll fuck back. Um, <laughs> I just loved this experience. Um, I think I was worried that this was going to be overwhelming, and it, it kind of was, but it was also really fun. Like, I feel like I've learned so much, and, like, the, the bigger thing is not even the specifics of each of the things that I read. It's just that there is a role for primary care, and what I want to do, it, it's a thing, and other people care about it, too. And I think that was really validating to me to know that, like, me wanting to incorporate a whole aspect of mental health care into my future career is not some misplaced thing that's going to be, like, people are looking at me like, well, why don't you want to go into fellowship? Why do you want to do this? It's a thing that other people care about, too. And I don't know. That just felt good. Can I ask a couple of follow-ups on that? Absolutely. I think it's very difficult to imagine a practice that you haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did this change what you imagined pediatrics could be? I think it opened my eyes to the fact that the things that I was hoping existed actually do exist. Huh. Um, I had hoped that people were doing things like this. But in my experience, I haven't seen a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And this was, yeah, this is not just like a, a pipe dream idea of like, oh, maybe someday we can incorporate mental health care a little bit better. It's actually happening and people are working towards it and trying to make a difference with it. And that feels really, really cool. Mm, good. Yeah, because I, I think there's I, th- I think there's some pieces for my take home that finally fell into place for me. I mean, there, there are so many... Um, gaps in all sorts of care, right? And yet those gaps seem to have like thumbs and fingers plugging them. Like I have this imagination of a dike being plugged by, <laughs> right? Uh, Netherlands, is that where the story comes out of? The fable tale? Um, and so H, HRSA, HSRA? RSA. RSA. Thank you, Allie. Um, I see this as an interesting approach where it looks like some of the patient populations that do have access to care, or I should say it differently, seem to have access to insurance, don't necessarily have access to care, or maybe better said, are not accessing care, right? Yeah. And, and so I think that as I'm looking at some of these homes, I've always had sort of this vision of, okay, powers bigger than me are going to make us have a healthcare system that everybody has to go to a home, and not everybody wants that, mm-hmm. right? And yet, it seems like this is a great strategy for a lot of people, particularly in maybe urban areas or some rural areas where uh, high percentages of the population are in Medicaid or Medicare po- uh, pockets, right? And, and so you have these homes where you can get a lot of care delivered, probably in the areas where that um, 50% of children that are not having care addressed, this, this might be mm-hmm. where the country has taken steps to try and fill that that need. And I I was very intrigued by that. I was also intrigued um, that even though we're taking those steps, again, I remain somewhat cynical. I'm not yet convinced (laughs) that we as psychiatrists do something better than primary care physicians. 
right? I, I would like to think we do. I think our experience helps us maybe in certain settings, maybe we've seen something before so it's easier to tackle. But there are so many great outcomes for so many people in primary care that um, I, I worry that we're creating a solution for something that doesn't need a solution, we're paying more for it. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to remain a little bit skeptical that you have to have a, a child psychiatrist involved and hopeful that all of these great uh, primary care physicians that you're rotating with are teaching fearlessness. Yeah, I think th- one of the, the biggest takeaways, and it kind of ties into what you were just saying, um, we don't just need to increase the number of doctors, we need to increase intentional integration and intentional use of services. Right, so what works for this community? What can we do specifically here? Like we can argue, you could argue for hours about what's the best solution to a problem, but really it's making it personalized and figuring out how we can best help the most number of people. Personalized medicine is a great approach, right? And I think it's the, the way of the future as uh, particularly as genomic medicine comes along. Um, but I also, I also want to be sure that as, as we say, we need to do more for everybody. We also say, no, we need to do things that work for mm-hmm. uh, as much as possible, right? It's not just about filling a slot. It's not just about we need a magic number. It's mm-hmm. let's see the data. And, and so I'm, I'm going to stick to the fact that um, I was very disappointed in our first primary care physician podcast that the limited data suggests that we're not any better than our primary care physician peers, <laughs> right? For, I think, uh, anxiety and depression. Yeah. But I'll also stick with... Um, that I'm, I'm not sure I'm thrilled with the route this is going yet until I see more data. And it might be that I just didn't see the data. Right. Hot take, but I think it's a win. Like, I think it's a good thing, even if it's like, it does it hurt a little bit to be like, oh, someone that doesn't have the same training as me is providing the same quality of care. Yeah, it hurts individually, but the patients are winning, so it's a That's win. That's the win. I mm-hmm. thought you were going to say it's a win just to no, have I, a program in place. I don't but, think, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who's the providing win, care. The win is we're providing care to patients. The win is the outcomes yeah. right that's Patients the win and that. i love that yeah that that mm-hmm. ego wounds are okay <laughs> exactly, right as long exactly. as patient care is better great great uh, job a lot of data Erin, you did a dive that uh was thorough and it was enjoyable to listen to um Thanks. sorry that i started tightening in just a little no, bit be- do not apologize thank you for doing that because i literally could talk <laughs> for four hours i didn't believe you at first and i was like I'm just as bad, so I'm going to have to work on me, too. we gotta, we got to rein it in. we got to rein it in. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, on that note. Team, Team out. out.